Welcome to Coach Aria's podcast, Coach to Lead. Uh, hi, probably I could say that it gives me great pleasure, but today it really gives me great pleasure. This is Ashok Malhotra, who is the creator and founder, whatever it is, uh, of this model called EUM. We've just been telling me, telling him not to call it YUM or YUM or whatever, but EUM, so that in future probably call it by his name. Honestly, this is, for me, the last couple of years, it's been one of the greatest uh, discoveries in my progress towards uh, systemic work in coaching. I had used other models, some of them very, very world-renowned, and I, I still had maybe, as of course, where the program progresses, I can explain a little bit without sort of meaning to be disrespectful to those uh, great souls who discovered those models. But humor is something that I found to be of tremendous value, and I have used it in a couple of cases with uh, very, very positive uh, outcomes. And this is why we have been trying to, in, in a sense, bring to awareness of all coaches uh, this is a diagnostic tool which looks at both the organization as well as the individuals to give you uh, an overview of how the individual views the organization and how the individual fits into the organization, the larger ecosystem. Ashok can explain all that much better than I can. So over to you, Ashok. Thank you very much uh, for being here today. A very warm welcome to all of you. Uh, we have, uh, as Ram said, uh, I've been working with you. I work with individuals groups, organizations. I live in Bangalore and I'm very ambivalent towards all frameworks. Frameworks in one hand help you to structure your thoughts. Simultaneously, they restrict you and, uh, you know, kind of force fit a certain thing and put things into types, categories, stuff like that. So what I like about Hume in my work with it is that it's sufficiently fluid and sufficiently open-ended. It gives a certain base and yet hopefully doesn't become too restrictive. In this session, we are actually converging three strands. One is on systemic coaching, second is on Hume, and the third is on cultural nuances. I have with me uh, Sharbri and Han, and of course Ram himself has been using Hume, so I hope we'll also have the benefit of his experience and what insights from him. So before I proceed further, may I invite Shorbri and Han to briefly introduce themselves and also make any opening statements that you may like to. Um, hi, everyone. I, it is my honor to be invited to this webinar to talk about my experiences with the EUM and uh, my experiences in coaching in multiple cultures, uh, mainly in China, uh, sometimes in Russia, in Europe, and uh, in other countries uh, over the world. I discovered EUM four years ago in 2015 uh, when I was attending a group relations conference in the UK and I met a colleague uh, who was working with Ashok. So he said, you know, do you want to uh, try this EUM uh, to discover something about yourself? And I said, yes, of course. And so that discovery of myself and my relationship with the system was very timely because the conference I'd just been to was also a very systematic um, relationship and dynamics conference. Uh, so since then, I was fascinated about this tool and eventually got uh, certified and started to work with EUM. So I'm very excited to be here today to share my experiences. Thank you. Thank you for being with us, Han. Yeah, Shadbudi. Hello, good evening, everyone. It is my honor 
to be uh, invited here along with Ashok. Ashok has been a mentor and a teacher for more than 25 to 30 years. And uh, I have been introduced to EUM by him about um, 20 years ago. And since then, we have been working with him. You know, I have had the pleasure of working with Han in China. Uh, and in coaching, I have had the pleasure of working with Yume in Middle East, in uh, Europe, and with uh, multiple other, uh, you know, peoples, of course, in India. And um, what I really like about EUM is you can always figure out the person, the individual as is, rather than boxing the individual into any kind of frame or any kind of references. And at the same time, understand how the individual looks at his or her context or the system. So both together create a very compelling picture. So all that will come from Ashok. I will come in as and when I can join in. Thank you very much and look forward to having this. Thank you, Shadri. <clears throat> so let me start with the first strand, which is on systemic coaching in terms of what our, I know the term is used by different people in different ways. So I thought it would be helpful if we start with sharing as to what is our understanding of systemic coaching and why we believe systemic coaching is important. So why systemic coaching? The most essential part for me in systemic coaching is the famous equation of Kurt Lewin. Behavior is a function of self and situation. None of us behaves in the same way in different situations. And no two human beings behave in the same way in any given situation. So it's always the interplay between the individual and the situation which is primary. And therefore, what is the nature of the system to which the individual belongs? One of the implications of this, of course, is that the individual and systemic issues are intertwined. You can never say that this issue belongs only to the individual, nor can you say it belongs only to the system. The classical example, of course, of this is uh, a traffic jam. A traffic jam exists because the people involved in it behave in a particular way. Simultaneously, once you are part of the traffic jam, uh, you know, it starts to, you are a victim of it also. So the individual is both a victim of the system, a recipient of the system, as also a creative of the system. So unless one understands that these issues are intertwined, it becomes very difficult to engage, meaningfully understand about what is happening. Now, the result of that is that all of us carry beliefs about the nature of the system. And you would see I've used two terms here, generic and specific. Generic beliefs are those which people carry almost at an unconscious level about systems in general. So someone may believe that all systems are oppressive. Or someone may believe that all systems are uh, close-knit. These are generic beliefs about, about systems. You may also have systems about the particular system to which you belong, that this system is like this. Now, whether the belief is generic or specific, it is part of a mental picture that the individual is carrying. And this determines what is the kind of membership which the individual will take in a particular system. 
Let me take an example. Supposing there's an individual who's very sensitive and very compassionate, and this individual finds himself or herself in a system where everyone is very aggressive and very mistrusting of others. Now, what are the possible psychological roles which this individual will take? Now, I'm not talking of their structural roles. I'm talking of their psychological roles. So one possibility is that the individual may become a passive bystander. Another possibility is that the person may experience himself or herself as a helpless victim. Another possibility is that the person may become a very effective mediator because a person in this situation system where trust is at a premium will very easily evoke trust of various people. So it will be a person whom others will trust very easily. And therefore, his ability or her, his or her ability to negotiate across conflicts will be very high. So what particular role the individual takes is obviously dependent upon the individual himself or herself as also about the nature of the system. So the system, in a sense, creates conditions in which a certain degrees of freedom is available for the individual. Now here, when I'm using the term system, please keep in mind that I'm not using it only in terms of structures and roles. I'm including its softer aspects as well. Those of you who are familiar with work of Eric Fromm would know that, you know, he uses a very interesting term, which I use very heavily in my work called social character. By social character, what Fromm has said is the essential nucleus around which the character structure of members of a system is configured, which is necessary for the system to survive in the way it is. A typical example of that would be that a feudal system can exist only if people who are part of that system believe in the divine right to do or they believe in the benevolence of the leader, then it becomes easy for the feudal system to exist. But when we are part of that system, we take these beliefs gospels. We take them for granted. It is so. But we forget that they are actually only beliefs. They are only assumptions. I mean, as great a scholar as Aristotle uh, would have been shocked to consider that men and women can be equal. For him, women were an inferior uh, species to men. To someone like Freud, for instance, penis envy came very easily. It's only much later that the other psychoanalysts discovered that there could also be something called a vaginal envy. So the beliefs and assumptions which are prevalent end up being taken for granted by us. So long as people remain captives of these beliefs and assumptions, the system only perpetuates itself. It never becomes something that can be revisited or reconfigured. Therefore, systemic coaching is one way in which some of these things, which are about the individual and the system, can be simultaneously put under the microscope. So what is systemic coaching in our understanding? Essentially, it's a dialogic space. This dialogic space could be one-on-one, -on -one, in a one-on-one -on -one setting, or it, this dialogic space can be at a collective level, typically, for instance, with the entire team, with the entire group. 
And what you do in this space is that you reflect and gain insights into self, system, and their relatedness and their impact on membership and role taking. The objective is to enhance self-reflexivity at individual and collective level and expand the perspective that people have. So long as one looks at the system in a frozen manner or looks at the individual in only a frozen manner that this, this is who I am or this is what the system is, the choices available are limited. The moment the, you start seeing the other aspects of the system or the other aspects of the self, so if, for instance, in the example which I gave, that if the person sees himself or herself only as a compassionate, sensitive individual, then the choices of roles for the person would be of a certain kind. But if the person expands that vision about the self and says, look, it is also possible for me to confront when necessary, then the space widens up for the individual or the individual starts looking at other elements of the system which are also available. So we believe that necessarily entails a look at the individual and the system simultaneously. And this is what, as I will come back and talk about you, what you attempts to do. It's a bifocal framework. It looks at both the individual and the system, but I'll come to that later. Uh, anything you'd like to add, Chaudhary, Han, Ram? Not yes, at this point. Yeah, I, I, I would, Ashok. I just want to point out this. Yeah. In fact, this aspect of it is what truly distinguishes Yum, and I don't think there is another diagnostic tool anywhere which matches it in this respect. Most of them either address one or the other. Uh, Hogan, Harrison, Luminger, MBTI, whatever. They all are about the individual. They come with that. And there are others like uh, there are some on, uh, forget the name, on team, Barrett's, and so on and so forth, which are about the larger organization. I have used all reasonably extensively. Uh, I'm certified in some of them. This is where I found, found really the problem. And especially since I'm seriously interested in systemic coaching and the approach of Peter Hawkins and others, and Odi in the last few years, and you yourself are very, very familiar with Odi. You take part in many uh, Odi uh, initiatives in India. When I was trying to combine the self uh, and, and uh, the, the three-part kind of Odi self, others, and the total system, and which is what Otto Shamar and others yeah. talk about now, uh, the only uh, diagnostic device that could help me understand this better I can go on to reams about this. And, and truly, I, I want to say, I, maybe you'll blush, but you, you are a fantastic teacher. Uh, I learned from you uh, so much during even those six, seven days that I worked with and later, uh, in terms of the depths to which it can be used as a lens to look at both the organization as well as uh, how the individual views the organization and how, as you clearly said, how you are at the same time you, you are a victim, you are a participant, and multiple other things. You wear the same lenses, and how do you see that in different ways? So uh, I, I just want to, I mean, I'm sure Han would have a point of view on this as well, um, in terms of her use, like I am, an outsider who is coming in from outside and using Jung, and then taking away something tremendously powerful. Thank you, Ram. I'm truly blushing, coming from you. I understand that. 
uh, I think I would like to add one thing uh, yeah. about EUM is that it opens up our understanding of uh, the different aspects of a human being, what he or she is facing with, and allow them to do so because a lot of uh, psychometric tools are used at workplace and do not include family into it um, purposely. So a lot of participants using those tools might feel constrained, like I should not be talking about myself in family situations or in other situations. And the EUM is a tool that makes all of us human again. And when we see ourselves as human, when we see other people as human, this will create a very uh, big synergy among people in the system as well. I think uh, people are getting uh, curious. For me, the experience of using the tools for mapping, and I think it's an important differentiation that Hume does not measure. It doesn't say that you are good at this and you're not very good at this. It simply maps where you are, who you are at this point of time, and what is the picture of the system that you have in the mind. And when we combine the picture of the system that I have, that we have in the mind, and then looks at the profiler or the mapper that one does of oneself, then it becomes very easy to look at. I have had multiple coaching experiences, both in India and abroad, where people have said, I have never realized that I'm looking at the system like this, or that there is a dissonance and the resonance with the system, or that I can look at the opportunities that the system offers without the understanding of what is the picture that I'm holding in my mind about the nature of systems. Most of the time, it rem we remain unaware of that. So that uh, Ashok, there are a couple of questions in case you want to take it up now. Yeah. One was from Anu who asked about, for you to ex expand a little bit on the exploration that you talked about, the expansion, uh, enhancement of the view about the system. Okay. Uh, there's a question from MG who says, uh, what about others in the system if they do oh. not think for the system and mm -hmm. themselves only as individuals? Does it not produce a conflict, uh, something like this? Uh, so maybe you can take it up now or later. All right. I think as we go along, maybe some of these will get dealt with. Otherwise, we'll pass them and come back sure. as we go. So let's let me just change tracks and talk about what is you. It's a comprehensive framework for understanding individuals, collectives, and by collectives we mean groups, families, organizations society at large, and the relationship between them. It has three main components. There are several other elements to it. I'm not going into them. The three main components are EUMI, which is maps the individual, EUMO, which maps the organization of the system, and EMPACT, which focuses on the relationship between the individual and the system. These are the three main components of EUM. It is uh, inspired by work of Claire Graves, with which some of you may be familiar, on his work on theory of uh, levels of existence and open systems theory of values. Graves did some research and you know, worked out in terms of how individuals evolve from one state to another. There are lots of similarities between EUM and Graves. There are also very significant differences. It also has a strong resonance with many 
Indian approaches like pluralism, non-linearity, holism, context sensitivity, etc. That is, we don't look at, you know, this, therefore, that kind of a thing, but look at emphasis is much more on pattern recognition rather than on categorization. This is perhaps will become clearer once we look at how differs from uh, many of the other frameworks of understanding and working with individuals. I think the most significant difference is that it looks at self as also as the organization. It looks at organizations and system as a living entity, as a verb rather than as a noun. The basic position is that Human beings are a dynamic configuration. They are self-reflexive and so are systems. They are all the time in the process of becoming something. There is no object out there. So EUM is not like a microscope, which you know puts the object under the microscope and says these are the properties of it. It instead looks at the pattern in which Several aspects of the cell are configured or several aspects of the system are configured in each other. So Ram, coming back to the question that you said in terms of expanding. Now what happens in this configuration? Some elements of the self or the system become prominent, whereas some elements become dormant. So self-reflexivity enables those aspects of the self and the system which have become dormant to also become more visible and more prominent. It doesn't look at things like opportunity, you know, strengths, weaknesses. The emphasis is that basic assumption is that all human beings are formed by the same basic element. Like physically, we all have two eyes, two ears, one nose, etc., etc., but it is the configuration which makes every human being distinctive. Similarly, all systems have same elements. What Hume does, it looks at the essential, the configuration. The framework itself posits six universes, and that's why the term existential universe mapper. EUM, the full form is existential universe mapper. It posits six universes which reside within each individual and organization. Each universe is a composite system of needs, attitudes, behaviors, values, etc. This is going to what uh, Graves called the levels of existence or state of existence. The difference, of course, is that Graves regarded them as steady states. In EUM, we look at them as dynamic configurations. They are evolutionary, but not hierarchical. Now, the reason we are making this difference is that often we assume that evolution is a good thing. And the more evolved, the better. You know, like you're a very evolved person is, would be taken as a compliment. In EUM, we say evolution is just a phenomenon. It just means that a preceding state influences the next state. In that sense, I would say EUM is a little more Ericksonian than Maslowian. It does not look at it in terms of, you know, this is the next state per se, but it only says that this, how a certain thing has been dealt with at an earlier state will determine what will happen in the next state. The universes are in constant interaction with each other. And essentially what you try and do 
is you map the specific configuration of the individual and the systems. Let me very briefly talk about what these six universes are that we talk about. Of course, one may say why six? They, they can be infinite, but as a, these are limitations of a framework. You have to take some finite thing. So here we have taken only six universes and I've been putting them all together because there is a correspondence. Now you would see that there is a correspondence so at the top are the six universes which are at the individual level and the bottom are six universes which are at the systemic or organizational level and they have a correspondence with each other. So the first universe which is called universe of belonging and protection at the individual level refers to that part of us was safe haven which wishes to anchor itself which says, okay, I am so-and-so because I belong to a particular context, a particular system, a particular family, and it gives me a sense of being who I am. So people who are, you know, this universe, uh, the emphasis is on continuity, heritage, tradition. The system equivalent of this universe is what we call a clan. So this need of the individual to belong, when that is prominent, the system ends up becoming, you know, you would have often heard people say, we are all like a family here. So you know, this system is where close-knit relationships are valued. They are neither good nor bad. They both have their positive side, they have their negative side. Like a clan, and the clan element is strong in a system, there is a strong sense of belonging that people have. Simultaneously, many times the organization becomes closed to new experiences. It becomes wary of outsiders. It does not take in people who are outside very easily. So this is, this is the correspondence between UVP and clan. The second universe is what we call the universe of strength and desire. Now this is that part of ourselves which says I matter. I have some needs, I have some desires, I have one life. I would like to pursue that for myself. I wish to make an impact. The corresponding universe at the systemic level is called arena. Arena means essentially the organization provides a space to the individual to showcase his or her prowess, create an opportunity to compete, create an opportunity to assert, to adventure, to zestfulness, aliveness and stuff like that. Again, it brings in a lot of energy in the system. On the negative side, it can also create a certain degree of chaos in the system. Difficulty in, for instance, in collaboration in the system. The third universe is called universe of roles and boundaries. This is a universe which perhaps essentially focuses on predictability, to ensure that things happen in a way which is clear and predictable, where the individual knows what is expected of me and what can I expect from others. The organizational equivalent of this is what we call a clockwork, where the system works with a certain degree of precision, with, you know, where you know that this is what will happen, where there are standard operating procedures for everything. And as we know, no organization can exist without having a certain degree of systematization, standardization, 
and stuff like that. So it is the individual's need for order and the organization's need for a certain predictability which marries URB with clockwork. The next universe is what is called universe of purpose and achievement. Here the emphasis is for the individual to enhance his or her own potential, actualize the potential which is there to achieve, to transcend, to go beyond the limits and a recognition that this cannot be done only by oneself. And one needs to collaborate with others. The systemic equivalent of this is called network, which is for individuals to engage with each other. So these nodes in a network are both competing and collaborating with each other. They primarily link on the basis of mutuality of self-interest. So each is trying to actualize its own potential, not by itself, but in relation with the other nodes. So that's why it's called the network. This is the universe at the un uh, systemic level, which emphasizes things like meritocracy, uh, rewarding according to the contribution, emphasis on competency building, skills and things of that kind. On the downside of it, it also creates a certain, uh, you know, apprehension about obsolescence, a certain anxiety. What the basic belief is that I am only valued for what I bring to the table and not as a person. The next universe is what we call universe of meaningful and intimacy, where the individual starts asking, what is the larger purpose? How am I contributing either to others or even to myself? Am I just achieving for the sake of achieving? Or is there a certain enhancement of wholesomeness that I'm bringing to myself? Like in UPA, the emphasis would be on growth. In UMI, the emphasis will be more in terms of proportion and how it fits into a larger purpose. The organizational equivalent of it is what we call ecology, where there is a recognition. Organization is part of a larger system, a larger ecology to which it belongs. So therefore, as you would see that when one talks of systemic, nature of systemic definition keeps varying. In the clan, the definition of system is a very narrow one. Whereas in ecology, the definition of the system is much wider. So what is the kind of definition that one is holding of the system also depends upon from which universe. Each universe is a lens. From which lens is one looking at it? Finally, we have the sixth universe which is the universe of UDS, universe of duality and simultaneity. And the organizational equivalent of it is Holonic. Essentially, th these universes are what we call meta universes. They are, in a sense, a combination of all the other five universes. So like all the five earlier five universes have both congruences and conflict. For instance, one needs one's need for achievement in UPA may well conflict with one's need to belong in UVP. One's need for order in URB will make conflict with one's need for adventure in USP. So in UDS, 
the emphasis is on holding all these universes as the tensions. Consequently, the primacy here is on ambiguity, how one engages with ambiguity, how one engages with uncertainty, how comfortable one is with that. At, at the organizational level, similarly, you are looking at how these various universes are being held together. Now, if I look at this, when it comes to things like systemic coaching or looking at the relationship, what you essentially try and do is see how these universes are configured at the systemic level and how are they configured at the, for the individual. For instance, if there is an individual who is not very comfortable with the universe of belonging and protection and finds himself or herself <coughs> in an organization which is very clannish, this person will feel very claustrophobic. This person will feel very, you know, uh, suffocated in that setup. And this person would all the time be pushing the system into doing something different, new, would always be challenging, may well be seen as a bull in a china shop. So what kind of things emerge? If a person is, is seeking a high UMI orientation, but finds himself or herself in an organization which is very high on network but low on ecology. This person would all the time be asking, fine, we are growing. But what does this growth mean? What does it mean in larger human terms? What does it mean for other people? So the individual stances that people will take will be very closely linked with what their perception of the organization is. I'm sure, for instance, you would have seen people who are very high on URB or who have a very strong pull towards URB. They invariably become the keepers for all rules and systems. And they kind of believe that if they don't follow, if they don't look after all the rules and all the processes, etc., they'd be havoc everywhere. Because other people may not respect the need for a system. So they become the torch bearers of systemic discipline. I can give, go on with examples. But what you try and do is one tries and sees what are the resonances and what are the dissonances. So how does it work? Ashok, yeah. Yeah. there is a question which might be a, uh, you know, interesting question here. Yeah. Uh, Somebody is asking, isn't UBP to UDS an uh, evolution in itself? Yes. And somebody is asking, is there a relationship with the chakras? Both, both are correct. I mean, I, I think there is the chakra issue is a much more involved uh, question, partly because I don't know also enough about chakras. The relationship between UBP and UDS, as someone said, there is an evolution. The only difference, the only caution that I would like to say is that it does not make UDS superior to UBP. In fact, UBP is the base. It is the essential foundation. In, in fact, what we have seen repeatedly is that when some of the issues which of the earlier universes are not engaged with, they show up in shadow forms in the other universes. Let me give an example. If there is a person who has not engaged sufficiently with the universe and desire, the UDS for such a person would be very, 
you know, non-committal kind of thing. You would see that this UDS person would justify for himself as UDS. But actually, it will be a non-committal stance. The basic premise in Hume is that each universe has something to teach us. And if we have not learned the lesson of that universe, then the so-called evolution, evolution can be very uh, fallacious, can be, can be very misleading. Here we are in many ways using the basic concept that meaningful evolution works on the principle of inclusion and transcendence. A very basic example of this would be if you have not learned the lessons of class two and then you are trying to work in the class, class 10, your foundation will be very weak. So the earlier universes, it is true that they are evolutionary, but in EUM, the earlier universes and the issues of the earlier universes are regarded as much more fundamental. If I was to take an organizational example, for instance, today I find that many organizations feel, uh, you know, that the UBP or clan is not a very desirable thing. They only want to become meritocratic. They only want to operate from the network. Now, what happens? Does the UBP go away? In fact, it goes up in all functional manners. There are cliques. There are, you know, processes of patronage. You all the time there are concerns. People are walking their backsides. So these issues don't go away. These issues have to be dealt with and engaged with. I agree that it is evolutionary. And that's why I said it is evolutionary, but not hierarchical. Ashok, while you are on it, uh, the question, though, uh, I think Mani asked a question probably in a slightly different context, but now that you mention it, uh, since I have done a fair amount of work on the chakras and energy centers, uh, the UBP is really very much the root chakra, which is the, I mean, I relate chakras usually to Maslow's hierarchy. Maslow's is related to graves and your model is related to graves. And so I, I think there is, there is clearly some kind of relationship, if no equivalence. And the beauty of chakras is when we talk about the root chakra, very often it is looked at it from the negative characteristics of greed, desire, and all that stuff. But at the same time, the concept of chakras is that when that chakra is brightened up, it enlarges, it enhances, it completely changes into something that all that is used for a larger purpose. And similarly for each. And UST would relate to what is called the uh, Manipuraka or the navel chakra. The UPA could relate to the Anahata or the heart chakra and so on and so forth. So the UDS, probably the Sahasrara, which is a crown chakra. So we can relate some equivalence to all that. But uh, the whole point that you are making is absolutely correct. And this is what I have actually found in actual application of this model. There is no right or wrong. We all are there at some point in time, and we can shift into different spaces depending upon the context and the situation. And then it's up to individual to see how it benefits, how it does not benefit. Very typically, a couple of cases I have experienced, and we can go into detail later, is when the chief executives change and the character of the chief executives change in organizations, I have found a tremendous uh, stress in the organization uh, a chief executive who is highly USD, for example, um, who only believes in my way is highway, 
and suddenly is replaced by another person who is a high UMI person who is looking at the vision and so on and so forth. The organization doesn't know what is happening. How do I cope with it? And so at the individual level, there's a lot of stress and it takes a lot of time. And working with them in systemic coaching, trying to make sense of what is happening is really very often the need for these organizations. Absolutely. Let me say how it works. The first step, of course, is that you understand the context. You try and see what the organization or the system, what is it going through? Or if you're working with the individual as to what the individual's context is, I'm sure in coaching, you would probably either have access to 360 degree or you would talk to the relevant stakeholders and find out in terms of what's the happening over here. Then you administer both UMI and UMO. The third step is that you map the resonances. And for instance, as I said, that if there is uh, an individual who has high valuing of UVP and experiences the system as clannish, there is a strong resonance. But if the individual has a high UBP orientation and low clannish experience in the system, now the significant thing is in EUM, we work with the assumption that not all resonance is good and not all dissonance is bad. Resonance can also easily become collusion. It freezes the individual and the system. Very typical example of an unhealthy resonance is an autocratic boss and a submissive subordinate. They may have very strong resonance with each other, but it is not necessarily a sign of good health. Similarly, dissonance actually provides the system and the individual energy to move forward, to make a change, to impact. So one of the things in EUN, which is always emphasized, is to distinguish between healthy and unhealthy parts of resonance and dissonance. Then obviously you set up individual or collective spaces. Typically you work in two ways. One is that you work with the team. If you are working with the team, that of course is much more effective than working with only one individual. You can also work with the individual, but there the entire emphasis can only be limited to what are the things which the individual can do. But when you are working with a team, it becomes so much easier to see as to how the various individuals are actually creating a certain situation whereby a certain role the individual is ending up taking. Now, a typical example, for instance, if you are in a team, where no one has any respect for any rules, you would invariably find that there'll be one person or two people who would become the flag bearers of all systemic discipline. And then these people will be beaten up for being too rigid and dogmatic. They're fulfilling a systemic need. Can I come in here with yeah, an please. example? Yeah, sure. So I was, um, you know, uh, I was doing a executive coaching of a very senior head of finance in, a, in an organization in Mumbai. And I was called to say that, you know, this individual has huge experience. He's extremely good. His relationship with the banking industry is fantastic. His uh, technicalities are fantastic, but his, uh, his promotion is held up because he's behaving really badly with his direct reports. 
And so when I went and met this individual, contrary to my assumption, this individual scores in uh, UMI, which is much more based on relationship, much more based on inclusion, were actually very high. This individual scores and needs for safety and security was very high. But what was highest was his score on the universe of uh, roles, roles and boundaries. And similarly, was what, what was not very high, what his perception of the organization of the uh, clockwork, that he did not believe that the organization was really going with all the rules and regulations. So while chatting with him, I figured out that, in fact, he had all the good intentions for his people, but he was taking the role of a mentor and a teacher, and in fact, a very strict teacher, and he wanted to teach people the right way of doing things because he believed that the organization was not really doing what they were supposed to do. And he had to hold on to all the rigidity of the system that he believed that the system should have held for the people to learn their roles because they were dealing with money. And if money was not really dealt properly, that the organization would be harmed. And so while he was holding the organization's well-being in mind, he was basically being punished for that. I just wanted to you know, give that uh, sure, example. Yeah, yeah. So the essential purpose, again, is, as you said, that how can one expand and say, okay, what are some of the other possibilities? How can, for instance, this individual that you were talking about, what are some of the other ways in which he could learn to express? Because we assume that his orientation, his concern, both for people and rules, etc., are all signs of good health. But they are not being engaged with in a way which is helpful either for him or for the system. So how does one help that individual to see that maybe by taking this, by believing that no one else is concerned about clockwork, he's actually taking on an a burden which is becoming dysfunctional both for him or for the system and is it possible for him to try and find a newer location a newer way in which he can configure his role of course it becomes a lot easier if one is engaging with the with a larger group or particularly the team most of my work you know i do some one-on-one -on -one work, but it's primarily with teams where it becomes easier for people to see as to how different individuals are ending up taking systemic roles, which may be suboptimal, and how a certain degree of enhancement or freedom can be experienced by them to expand in which they are engaging with themselves and the roles that they are taking. Would you like to add anything, uh, Han, Shodbury, Ram? Yeah, um, Ashok, I, the, the, for me, uh, one of the most powerful giveaways of Jung, and you know that I discussed with you in the last company where I worked with Jung, and I'm just explaining to the audience uh, the background a little bit. Han can share something, because both of us as outsiders, we can bring in a different perspective. Uh, this was an typically in systemic work. I, like many other people, we spend time in terms of building the psychological safety of the team. Uh, it's a group. I have never seen walked into a team in any leadership uh, uh, group. 
Uh, they call themselves as teams, but they are not. They are all silos, each one the night of the long nights, as soon as they leave the boardroom, as it were. And so usually you expect that and try to build a certain amount of vulnerability, collaboration and all that stuff by asking them to share and so on and so forth. And when we did the Yum before and uh, Ashok and his team, within a week, they turned out something which normally would take many more days. And what I saw and I immediately rushed to Ashok to ask him was that this whole organization, the way the individuals as well as the way they viewed the organization was that they hated dissonance. They were looking for harmony all the time. And so it was like diplomacy was the most uh, powerful attribute of this. Given that, so I was asking Ashok, hey, uh, does it make sense for me to try and work on this more and try to build the safety and so on? As it is, these guys are, I don't know, uh, what is the right word to use without being derogatory, but um, uh, they, they are brown nosing each other as it were. They don't want to point out anything. They don't want to create any dissonance. Uh, there is explicit resonance, but th that is not necessarily true from the way they are coming out. So <clears throat> his advice to me was, yeah, why, why don't you try and be a little confrontational? Uh, make them be less diplomatic. So I, I, I talked to this, I called up the CEO and uh, also the CHRO and told them, this is what I'm finding, this is what I would like to do. Do they see any problems with that? In fact, they said, my God, this is what we have been experiencing. Nobody put it in words. So please do whatever you want to do, light the fire, do whatever you want to do. So of course we went carefully with the agreement of these two key people. And there was things, amazing things happen in terms of how it shifted. Um, so one of the things that came out of Yum, okay, the universes, but also um, the, the Yum questionnaire is based on, I sure can go into detail in terms of certain adjectives which are being ranked in terms of how the person sees himself or herself now and in the future and in respect of the organization and so on and other people. And based on that, you, you can really interpret a lot of things in terms of how they are looking at things. And these, some of these adjectives, the way they are ranked, they ranked, for example, one of the adjectives was diplomacy, being collaborative and so on. They were very, very high. But reading between the lines, it wasn't so when it came to description of the universes. Um, so that, that is something along with the universes, if you could just link in a little bit, and, and of course, the, the greatest value I always took away from Jung, uh, Jung was uh, what you call the distinctive and tonality matrix, which actually describes an organization. And having been trained in that, I, I used to say that uh, when I look at somebody's Hogan's profile, it's like a horoscope. I can read that person. And truly, you can, because Hogan goes into such more granular details in terms of the individual. Similarly, EOM, uh, when I look at the uh, organizational chart of DTM in this particular case, distinctive tonality matrix, it's, it's amazing. Uh, you can immediately identify uh, that organization, even if you don't know the details of it, the where it stands, what is it that organization the people are proud of, what is it that they put a lot of value on, where they put lower values on and so on. So I'll stop here. Ram, I'll uh, see if I can talk a little bit about uh, DTM and what you had said. But before that, I'd like to build on something which is very interesting. And I also, I think, 
it gives us a thing to look at some of the cultural nuances which are often at work. Now, one of the things which I've often found in Indian organizations, I don't know how, how it works in other places, maybe uh, Sharbri with her experience in Europe and other places and Han with her experience in China can talk about, that in India, it seems very paradoxical that the biggest obstacle to collaboration is conflict avoidance. It is because people wish to avoid conflict, collaboration comes up. Now, I remember once Shalbari and I were working with an organization and the CEO of the organization said, look, I experienced there is not enough collaboration and they wanted to us to do something at collaboration. And as we were working with them, all of them said, look, we collaborate with each other beautifully. What is the problem? We are always there. We are nice to each other. We don't interfere in each other's work. We don't, uh, you know, step on each other's toes. We are very nice and polite with each other, what you are calling diplomatic. So this business that lest I offend often end becoming the biggest obstacle to collaboration. Repeatedly, I have seen that whenever, for instance, if there is a meeting going on where various SBUs or business heads are making presentations, everyone else will keep quiet. The entire dialogue will take place between the CEO and the SBU. No one else would raise any uncomfortable question. They would stay clear of everything. So the silos which happen in many times in Indian organizations, are not so much because people are very aggro with each other. The silos happen because your essential thing is, I will not interfere in your stuff and you will not interfere in my stuff, which kills all collaboration. So there are several issues which I find and I'd like both Han and Sharbri to share in terms of what their experience has been. In working in Indian organizations, some of the things I have often seen that how the universe of strength and desire is configured makes a huge role. Ram, you talked about this business of, you know, what people feel proud about or they feel uncomfortable with. Many times, partly because of our culture, we have a very, very uncomfortable relationship with the universe of strength and desire. Consequently, it's either projected onto others or it operates in an insidious manner, in a latent fashion. So you're all the time justifying whatever you are doing in terms of systemic needs, in terms of what you believe is necessary for the system and stuff like that. So there are all kinds of things. So what people take pride in and what people feel burdened about also has some elements. Of course, there are individual differences. And human beings, human imperatives are the same everywhere. But I think there are also cultural nuances which are different. Han, would you like to share what has been your experience of working in China? Yeah, I can share my uh, work experience in both China and Japan. You know, yeah. uh, in the East Asia, uh, area, um, the culture, collective culture is very, very strong. And it's so strong that uh, it influences the organizations. You know, when I go to the organizations, everybody would say, we work like a family. This sounds very great, but you have to know 
how families work in East Asia, right? Which means you follow. Okay, it does not mean anything like it's happy. It's we take care of each other. It's like you follow the rules. You follow what whoever is more senior than you, and you shut your mouth up, and you don't say a word when people tell you that I'm senior. You listen to me. So when I was working there, sometimes we try to build some uh, uh, communication with uh, the participants. If we do team coaching, everybody's silent. And so I have to talk to them one-on-one -on -one and say, is there a problem? Uh, why are you silent? And so they would say, well, we're not supposed to uh, embarrass our instructor or embarrass our facilitator. If we say something, if we have questions, we have to be um, obedient uh, because our leader says so. We have to be nice. So this thing about being nice, being harmonious, really suppresses individual needs. But eventually, how they deal with this personal need is that they would say to the leader that, yes, of course, I will follow your order in the public. But in private, whether they do it or if they do it with good quality, we don't know. Right? So they, there is always this, yes, I will follow. But whatever comes up, is they feel like it's not their choice. It's not their responsibility. So they always come back with something that's very shabby that's not with the good quality and they say I, I tried you know and there's nothing you can do with it so that's there is this downside of people all following the rules looks nice and efficient but it's not very effective Sarvari? yeah so uh, my experience of working with uh, europeans and when i mean europeans there were germans italians hungarians uh, partly also some of the people from uh, turkey and egypt um there, my experience of working with them with EUM was that they uh, actually preferred the uh, universe of purpose and achievement. That was the most preferred universe for them. Uh, you know, that was the way to be. And uh, universe of belonging and protection was fairly low. They didn't much value that, whereas they valued the universe of roles and boundaries. So both universe of roles and boundaries, but the highest value was universe of uh, purpose and achievement, collaboration and competition. However, when the same group came together to give feedback to each other, they held back from each other. And it, it was an in-company workshop. So people were not um, strangers to each other. They came from different countries, but they worked from the same organization. But they did not really offer the, um, the feedback as they were expecting the other to do so they were everybody was expecting the other to be honest while they themselves held back as a result the feedback session wasn't very well whereas they all believed that they were all existing in the world of um, purpose and achievement and very different from china they had no difficulty in putting the facilitators in distress they continuously questioned they challenged which actually made the, the discussion very very vibrant and very meaningful so you know so that's the difference that i see i think in in europe and in uh, america as well the the valuing of competency the valuing of skill the value in north america the valuing of what am i bringing to the table etc uh, etc et takes precedence over what is the nature of the relationship 
so the relationships are taken that if you are working then you have to manage and that's why politeness comes so politeness is held with a lot of value politeness and how you are talking to the other person when you are respecting the other person but the respect and politeness is more in the interface not as much as about their opinions of each other and i think so the whole view of competency etc etc and being straightforward i think is held at, on a much higher value um on the contrary when i worked in china with han their uh, valuing of universe of belonging and protection was very high and they came across exactly that that they would not tell us directly but when speaking one on one then they will come with whatever they were thinking of so so that's uh, that's an interesting one what is also uh, true in the us uh, generally what i found probably to greater extent than uh, europe is that there's tremendous amount of uh, emphasis on uh, social etiquette politeness and all that kind of a stuff which in turn reflects beautifully as passive aggression so okay. every second person that you see is passively aggressive and uh, but not openly aggressive uh, it's a fantastic way of how you can cloak yourself in such a way uh, that you know i'm a very good person uh, but inside what i am is something very different i'm going back to what uh, you had said ra in terms of this it eum individual and or eum uh, organization we do not say this organization is clockwork or this organization is network or this individual is ubp or this individual is usd etc what we instead try and see is how are these and including the words that you talked about the adjectives they configured what part is being held with what feeling tonality by the individual so in many ways what it comes down to is that we look at what are the various what we call zones what is the zone of pride for this individual what does this individual feel proud about or what does this system feel proud of what is the zone of comfort for the individual or the system what is the zone of conflict for this individual or the system what is the zone of distress for the individual or the system and what is what we call zone of inspiration or evocation as to what is it which would propel this individual to make a shift not because the individual is feeling compelled to make a shift but there is an internal evocation which the individual will respond to so the dtm that you refer to ram is primarily based on this construct that you try and see what is located where in each of these zones now the reason why i wanted some time to spend also on the cultural nuances that these zones are working on a substratum of certain cultural codings so there are cultural codings in china or japan or europe etc which make people take a certain feeling tonality vis-a-vis -vis either the universes or the words or a certain kind of behavior like han the example that you gave that there is a certain sense of one cannot disobey the prevalent authority structures as they exist so therefore there'll be an experience of internal oppression which the individual experiences 
there will be almost a certain thing which the individual would end up saying and it will become a collective thing for the people as a whole. So there, there can be a sense of resignation around it. There may be a certain sense of passive rebellion around it. There may be a certain thing of private, you know, public agreement and private disagreement and stuff of this kind. Now, unless one engages with this distress and therefore some of the coding's which get when we start looking at exploring some of these things, both at the individual and at the collective level, it can hopefully become insightful for individuals and systems to move forward. Shorburi Ram, are there any questions, insights, observations which have been uh, in the chat box which people have come up with? Somebody who's asking, sharing the list of books, articles that provide deeper understanding of EUM. Okay. Uh, one is, of course, uh, my book, which is called uh, Indian Managers and Organizations, Boons and Burdens. Uh, this book uh, not merely provides the framework, but it also provides the meta-analysis of the data that we have for more than uh, 125 organizations and 6,000 managers. And we have only taken in this the data from Indian organizations, though it has been used elsewhere. But since the database of others is not large enough, we have focused primarily, so it also throws up as to what are some of the typical patterns that we have observed, particularly in Indian organizations. So that is one that I can think of, which is directly visible. You can also visit our uh, website, youmlens.in, correct? Yeah. Which will give you some this thing of uh, papers and articles which are... Uh, available so maybe also some of the video clips i think there are we have done a couple of uh, i think recordings of that both should be available in fact for people who are interested in the systemic part may like to look at one of the sessions we did for kocharya was on uh, game of thrones where we had looked at game of thrones as a system and then see okay given this system what kind of individual role taking patterns are likely to emerge. So we had looked at some of the individual characters and mapped their role taking in relation to what the systems are. Yeah, we had fun, didn't we, Ashok? So yeah, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. can post the, <laughs> <laughs> the YouTube link. It's available on the Kochare YouTube. Uh, we, we, I thoroughly enjoyed <laughs> looking at those characters. Yeah, more in terms of your own experiences as well, Ashok. I shared some of it and we can come back to it. but. In terms of specifically what you've seen uh, in organizations, without probably giving the name, some of the major organizations that you've worked with in, Indi in India, many of them you have worked with, um, how does the shift take place by understanding where they are? For me, very simply put, uh, one of the things when I went through the Yom was that how disruptive for the system was my own behavior uh, when I was in my 40s, when I was uh, leading multiple companies, multi-billion dollar companies and so on and so forth. And if I were to do it all over again, how I could do it far better in a very different way uh, by having a better understanding of uh, what these universes are. Maybe that's something that you could, if you could do that. Take an example of an organization. Uh, this is an organization which had been a kind of a subsidiary of a multinational been in existence in India for a fairly long period of time. 
but had been operating as a very small clannish system and the expectations from the organization were also very limited it was also very limited it had it had both the positives of a clannish organization and also some of the negatives of a clannish organization but the time when i came started work with this organization was a time when it was seeking to very significantly expand its operations in india so the time when you know india was a big thing and everyone wanted to have you know as much uh, you know growth etc saw it as possibilities huge uh, thing which are coming which meant a need for a certain shift in the character so some of it happened through people some new people coming up you know some a new ceo came in a new set of senior managers came in and then we did this workshop with them with this team where we administered both yum individual and yum organization and then we sat with them and saw helped them see in terms of where the organization is what are the kinds of shifts that they think is necessary for it to make what are the stresses which it is creating how is their own personal orientations facilitating or hindering that and develop a certain what i may broadly called a blueprint for certain shifts which are take, which need to take place some of these included changes in systems structures but the primary emphasis was in terms of individual reconfiguration particularly people had been in the system for a fairly long time because it was very easy to treat them as old fossils as you know no longer but yet these people had a fairly strong grip on the system they had this and they carried a certain credibility in the system which was a huge resource and bringing them on to the board i think was a very significant part of this exercise that they also could feel till then they were just kind of feeling as though some newcomers have come and they are now you know taking over and you know we have no place this was of course followed by a fair amount of one on one work with specific individuals yeah okay did i can very broadly say something over here that by and large to the extent possible we try and look at things from a phenomenological point of view rather than from a normative point so when one uses the term corrupt it has a strong normative mental aspect to it now i am not saying that corruption in that sense does not take place but i think it's a phenomena which has to be understood in terms of the context in which it is taking place many of the behaviors which may seem corrupt and nepotistic from an a certain point of view may not necessarily be the same when looked at it from the individual who's actually engaging in it particularly it's true for nepotism like again if i look at the cultural context in india many people would feel that they are morally obliged to help their kith and kin and would not look at it as something which is nepotism though from an objective point of view it may be so so one needs unless one need engages with it as a phenomena because when you pass a judgment you can do nothing about it 
you can only eliminate it you can you can't really work with it. you can't try and understand as to what is really happening over there so my preference to the extent possible is to look at phenomena as phenomena rather than get caught with normative judgment uh there is another question anuradha is asking yeah. whether uh, hume report changes over a period of time or by and large remain the same through a working lifespan of an individual if changes what is the periodic relevance of this tool and how often is it required to be retaken well uh, by its very definition it is supposed to change because we say it is dynamic we look at individuals as dynamic configurations they are not static but unfortunately it doesn't change as much as i would like it to change by and large it remains much more stable unless the individual has done some significant work with himself or herself then a shift takes place so as i said by uh, i would like to see it change much more because if the basic assumption is that human beings are self reflexive human beings are dynamic they move so therefore a certain shift is something uh, which is presumed in the framework but it is more stable than i would like it to be by and large you would see an vision of the individual or the individual has done some significant work with himself or herself then then you would find a significant change otherwise you don't find uh, a very significant change at least not for uh, over a period of a couple of years um ashok uh, just to say it's been an amazing uh, conversation and presentation uh, thanks to you shobri and han as well um it's been an honor ram pleasure honor uh, for the say guess and one of the things i mean i i'm again i don't want to sound biased or whatever but pretty much almost every a uh, proposal i give to people for systemic coaching organizations today i put in yum uh, automatically there of course uh, how they respond to it want to uh, take on that additional thing but i i do not believe that without a framework like that the real efficacy of a systemic coaching would happen having having seen how how powerful it is so what i really um, we are trying to do through kacharya and bringing you to try and make people aware that there is such a powerful system that exists in terms of interpreting cultures uh, providing self realization at the same time organizational realization uh, i haven't yet come across one that does uh, collectively the totality of it but if there is i'll be glad to know uh, so it has been wonderful having you here thank you sir thank you for giving us the opportunity I yeah. think this has been really lovely uh, working all the best thank you thank you bye 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 thanks for tuning in to today's episode you can listen and subscribe to our podcast on apple podcasts google podcasts and spotify we launch new episodes weekly to learn more about coaching leadership and self development visit us at kocharya.com that's c o a c h a r y a.com See you next time.